All right. Welcome to the Apostolic Bible Study Podcast. My name is Brother Asher. I'm a member of Christ Center Church in West Columbia, South Carolina. And today we're going to talk about spiritual authority, what it is and what the Bible's got to say about it. So before we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help and your blessing in discussing this deep topic that your word outlines for us. I pray, Lord, that we would do right by you, do right by your word, and that you would challenge us and help us to be obedient followers of both your word and your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So spiritual authority. You know, just to backtrack a little bit for our our previous episodes, obviously we've gone over a lot of critical doctrines, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, infilling of the Holy Ghost. Even more foundational, we've gone over who God is, who man is, what sin is. But now we've got to understand where the life of the Christian actually takes place. And the answer to that is that our lives as Christians take place within the context of the local church. Jesus did not design Christians to live solo, to just be kind of roaming around as spiritual nomads. He designed us to live within a local congregation of fellow believers that is guided by a pastor, a spiritual authority for our lives. So this is a very, very critical topic when it comes down to how Christians actually live. It's very, very practical for us. And there's a lot of different theories. So you've got on one side Roman Catholics who have a very high view of the church's authority, of the priest's authority, to the point that you must confess your sins to a priest And they have the actual authority given them from God to forgive those sins through the sacrament of confession. So obviously that's a very high view of authority, one that um, I would argue is not biblical. But then you have on the other side a more, um, I guess laissez-faire would be a way to put it, but like your fundamentalist Baptist view, where I've literally heard them say, a pastor say to his congregation, I have no authority over you. Only the Bible has authority. No man has any authority. So those are kind of the two ditches on the side of the road, right? And the reality of what the Bible has to say is somewhere in the middle. So that's what we're going to talk about here today. So I think it's best to understand authority as kind of a chain or a flow, Think of it like a flow chart. So where does all authority begin? It begins with God, right? God is the one who has all authority in himself. He's the one that made heavens and earth. He's the one that created all things, ordains all things, is sovereignly over all things. This has to do with uh, some, some verses and some names of God that we discussed in our first episode. He is Jehovah. He is El Shaddai. He is all-powerful ruler over all the world. And as such, all authority ultimately belongs to him. Okay, so I think no matter what kind of Christian you are, what branch you belong to, 
what you believe, we all would agree that all authority ultimately comes from God and begins with God and is ultimately owned by God. But then beyond that, I think the first step that we can put in our flow chart of authority goes from God to the God-man, to Jesus of Nazareth, who we believe is God, but is also man. And there's a couple verses that really highlight this. The apostles make it clear, and Jesus makes it clear through his very ministry, that this is a really, really important feature. It's not one that we can brush over because the apostles didn't brush over it. So if you go to Acts 17.31, Paul is preaching in the Areopagus, and he says this. He's talking about the authority given to Jesus Christ, the God-man, when he says this. He hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. So a lot of pronouns in that, you know, a lot of he and a lot of him. But he, meaning God, hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he, God, hath raised him, Jesus of Nazareth, from the dead. Now, obviously, when we distinguish here between God and Jesus of Nazareth, we're not saying that Jesus is not God. But we are making the same distinction that the Bible clearly makes in this verse, that because Jesus has both a divine and a human nature, that there is a distinction there. And it doesn't in any way negate the oneness of God that we hear in Deuteronomy 6.4. But there is a distinction because of his humanity. He is both human and divine, Jesus is. So God gives this authority to the God-man. And there's a lot of other verses that kind of line up with this. If you go to John 5, 22 and 23, this is Jesus speaking. He says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. So all judgment... And by, um, I guess, inference here, we can say all authority from this verse is given unto the Son, unto Jesus, unto the God-man, unto the one who is both human and divine. John 17, 22 says this, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, The Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Key phrase there, as thou hast given him power over all flesh. And then we all know the verse at the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 18, right? When Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and what does he say? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So there is a transfer from authority here that, again, the Bible is clear about this. 
The Bible is crystal clear that this transfer of authority is a reality. Paul preaches about it, and Jesus himself testifies to it repeatedly. So where does the authority go from there? Does it stop with Jesus? Is Jesus the only one that has authority, or does he give it to somebody? Well, in reality, Jesus gives it to somebody. The next transmission or flow of that authority is from Jesus Christ to his apostles. Okay, so we read in Matthew 10, 40 this, He that receives you receives me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. You see, you can see the whole flow of authority right there. And then one of the last things that Jesus says to the apostles before he leaves them in the Gospel of John is, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. So Jesus is transferring, bequeathing his authority to the apostles in the same way that it was given to him. Why does he do this? Because Jesus knows that ultimately all salvation that will come down to all the generations since the apostles will come through them and through their word. He prays for this in in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. Remember when he says, I'm not just praying for these alone, but for also them which are going to believe on me through their word, through the apostles' word. And it's this very authority that Jesus gives to the apostles that allows them to write the holy words of Scripture and to preach on the day of Pentecost the message of salvation and to heal the same way that Jesus healed. Now, there's some other Scriptures that highlight this transfer of authority from Jesus to the apostles, and it is... um, Two are in both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. These are going to be familiar passages. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, says this. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Whom say ye that I am? Right? So he's asking, okay, what's your opinion? Who do you say? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is the first time that the word church is ever mentioned in the New Testament. And it's one of the very few, very few times that it is mentioned in all of the Gospels. We don't hear much about this word church until we get to the book of Acts and to the epistles in the book of Revelation. But Jesus speaking here prophetically because the church had not been born yet since that happened on the day of Pentecost. But he said, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is one of the most important passages, one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible. And if you're a Roman Catholic or you've been exposed to a lot of those arguments, this is a very important passage to um, try to argue for the authority of the Pope of Rome. That Peter was given an authority here in Caesarea Philippi, which was different than all of the other apostles. And that what was given to him was special. And that ultimately, they argue, that he is the rock on which the church is built. Um, But a problem with that reading is we read in Matthew 18, just a few chapters after Matthew 16, obviously. And we read this. This is in verse 15. It says, Jesus is talking about, um, he's outlining what the rule of discipline is. In the local congregation looks like. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If, she, if he shall hear thee, you've gained your brother. But if he won't hear you, then take with you two, one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the same promise that is given to Peter, the same authority that is given to Peter in Matthew 16 is here given to all the apostles. And let's spend a minute here on understanding what binding and loosing mean. What does that mean? Does that mean that uh, there is an authority to bind spirits or loose spirits? Well, it could mean that. One issue with that is... So Peter has the authority or the apostles have the authority to loose spirits that are then going to be loosed in heaven. I mean, it kind of breaks down a little bit. It doesn't really make sense. But what this is actually talking about, once you read it in context, and we've read the context of Matthew 18, is that the decisions made by the authority that God has put in place, in this case, the apostles, are ratified in heaven and backed by heaven's authority. So in Matthew 18's case, this is a church discipline case. There's a brother who sinned. He's been confronted by the person he sinned against. Then he's been confronted by the person plus one or two witnesses. And then he's been confronted by the church And he still won't listen. And so the church has made the decision to treat him as a heathen, to excommunicate him. 
and heaven looks at that decision that the church has made and says, what you have bound on earth, we have bound in heaven. We have ratified the decision that has been made by the church and by the authority of the church. This is so critical to understand, and it is incredibly serious when you understand the authority that has been given to the church. And it is ultimately the authority to bind and to loose men's consciences. You know, this is one of the key verses where if you, um, let's say you go to a church, right? And this is getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I think it's, it's pertinent in this case. Let's say you go to a church where the church has standards that you might not necessarily agree with. We're talking about holiness standards. Um, we all kind of can think of some examples there of, of standards of holiness, whether it's um, sleeve length or um, skirt length or um, whatever it could be, Right? Obviously, there's a biblical basis for standards of modesty and standards of holiness. But what happens if the church has a standard that isn't necessarily verbatim from the Bible? Ultimately, the church still has the authority to bind your conscience to that standard. And they have the right to do it. And God backs that up. Meaning, the church has real authority and ministers of God have real authority. And so this flow of authority continues. It's not just with the apostles. You might look at that and say, oh, well, only the apostles have the power, the power to bind and loose, not um, ministers today. But if you look at the flow, it, it continues here. So... Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that thou have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So Paul is still living. He's still writing the inerrant word of God, and yet he sees that a future is coming. And so succession is already important to him. And so this, let's bring it back to Peter, right? the one who receives this special charge um, or what at least appears to be a special charge in Matthew 16. Um, I think it's clear from the Gospels that Peter was kind of the head honcho out of the apostles. I, don't, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that. He's obviously the one who preaches on the day of Pentecost. He's mentioned more than any of the other apostles um, in a large degree when it comes to just the mentions of his name in the Gospels and in Acts. I think Paul might have him beat in Acts, but other than that, in the Gospels especially, Peter is the only one um, that has that high rank um, and is mentioned that frequently. But here's what he says in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. He says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So Peter isn't saying, 
I have an authority that other elders, other preachers don't have. No, he's saying, I am among the rank of preachers. I'm also a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I am a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, meaning I'm going to go to heaven one day. And so what does he say to his fellow preachers here? He says, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Does that sound familiar to you? It is so reminiscent of Peter's reinstatement at the end of the Gospel of John when him and Jesus are sitting on the beach and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And what does he say to him three times? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And so Peter takes this command and obeys it. But not only does he obey the command to feed his sheep, but he ordains others and tells them, feed the flock of God which is among you. Take the oversight. Be examples to the flock. Not being lords over God's heritage ultimately, and we acknowledge that and and faithful ministers acknowledge this too. Um, that ultimately all souls belong to God. They don't belong to any man. But there is a real way and a real sense in which pastors are true shepherds. Even though they are under the chief shepherd, they are still true shepherds. And it is because of this that we are called to obey our pastor and to obey our minister. Remember what Jesus said, he that hears you, hears me. And he that despises you, despises me. And he that despiseth me, despises him that sent me. Did you get that? He that despises their pastor, their minister. That isn't the same as despising your boss. Okay, this is a spiritual deal. And if you have ill will towards your pastor, ultimately you have ill will towards Christ and you have ill will towards God. So here's the test. The test of whether we are being obedient to God is whether we're being obedient to our pastor. That's it. That's it. If we obey our pastor, then we acknowledge that he has the authority that has been given him from God. And we must submit to that. And we can say, oh, well, my pastor, you know, it'd be easier if my pastor was, uh, was more like Jesus and was absolutely perfect. Well, <laughs> God knew what he was doing when he set up the church. You know, Jesus is alive right now. He's in heaven right now. He could have stayed on earth. 
He could have stayed on earth and, and been everybody's pastor and been everybody's spiritual authority. He could have set up shop in Jerusalem and we could all go see him once a year. But he didn't do that. He left. And he put men, imperfect, but chosen men in charge of the church. Jesus knew what he was doing. He specifically set it up that way so that we would learn to trust him. Because guess what? We can look at our pastor and say, oh, well, you know, if my pastor was more perfect, I would obey him like I obey Jesus. Well, no, the reality is you're not perfect either. And this is the way that God has set it up. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how can they hear without a preacher? This is the way that God has ordained things to be. God honors the office of pastor no matter what. It is a sacred office. So here's an example for you from the Old Testament. The people of Israel are murmuring against Moses. And what happens when they murmur against Moses? You know what? Some of the murmuring might have been legitimate. If we would have been there, maybe we would have felt the same way. Oh, we have to eat this manna over and over again. I'm tired of it. You know, I can barely hold it down. This is not good food. We really, uh, you know, there's no water out here. This is ridiculous. I'm sure if we would have been there, we would have been hard-pressed not to join in in the murmuring. It would have made perfect sense to us. We like to think that we're better than everybody in the biblical narrative, but in reality, we're the exact same kinds of people. And we can see that by how we murmur in our daily lives. But when the people of Israel murmured against Moses, what did God do? How did he view it? He took it as a personal offense against himself. God took it personally when the people of Israel murmured against Moses. But Moses was just a man. He was an imperfect man. But guess what? His office had a mark of divinity. It had a mark of God's righteousness. It had a mark of God's infallibility. And that office commanded the obedience of everybody in Israel. And here's the ultimate reason, and it's the same reason why we are commanded to obey our pastor no matter what. Even though they're imperfect, the one who ultimately ordained them, Jesus Christ himself, is perfect. Now, just a short qualification here. Someone might be listening to this and maybe they're dealing with severe unbiblical spiritual abuse. Um, obviously, there is no place for sin and uh, we ought not to sin no matter who commands us to sin. Um, so that goes without saying. We ought to obey God rather than man. But I think the normal, everyday, ordinary practice of the church is there are good men in leadership that God has ultimately chosen, and it is up to us 
to submit to his ways, to submit to God's ways. So people like to uh, bellyache. They like to murmur. They like to complain the same way that the people of Israel did. But you know what peace that we would have if we would see Jesus in our pastor? See Jesus in your pastor. Ultimately, Jesus has no faults. Remember what Pilate said about him? I find no fault in him at all. And he is the ultimate shepherd and bishop of our souls. So that can give you peace. Ultimately, oh, here's another point. I want to make it here too. It is a, I mean, it is such a um, epidemic in today's modern church for people to criticize their pastor and not to pray for him. And that is the height of arrogance. And I mean, that's straight from the pit of hell. Because guess what? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your pastor's doing or not doing that you're not happy with. If you're not praying for him, you're living in sin. You're commanded to pray for him. The Bible commands you to pray for him. It's your duty. And if you're not praying for your pastor, then you have no leg to stand on when you criticize him. That's just the way it is. So, wrapping all this up, all authority ultimately stems from God, but flows all the way through the God-man to the apostles and then to those who preach the apostles' doctrine to the men who have succeeded the apostles throughout the generations who have the ability and the power through the word of God to bind and loose and who have the backing of heaven. So I pray that we as saints, as lay people in the church, would understand this and would get a deeper grip and a deeper love for our local church and for our pastor. And we get a burden to pray for them, for our pastors all across this country. And that ultimately, we would see Jesus in our ministers. Well, this has been the Apostolic Battle Study Podcast. Appreciate you for listening. God bless and have a great night.